All right. Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It is a podcast where three friends get together and chat true crime, and astrology, and any other weird bullshit that they might think about. And sometimes <laughs> it's about the planets aligning. God damn it. <laughs> um, we are your hosts, Hannah. Sarah. And Meredith. This is episode 60, Still a Train Wreck. Woo! Woo! Toot toot. Housekeeping? Yes, I have housekeeping. Let me take another drink before I start this shit. Behind the curtain, she told me and Sarah that she did have some housekeeping, dropped the topic, and they won't tell us what it is. So we really want to know. We're like on the edge of our seat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you're listening to this now, you have listened to Hannah's episode about Peter Curtin, or Jizz Pants, as we called it. <laughs> And there were several things that we Googled. Again, sorry, Teddy. (laughs) Oh, God. One of which is that you cannot over-ejaculate. And the other was that you don't lose sperm count by ejaculating too much. And that you also can have an orgasm even if you are not rocking hard, we'll say. So... In a conversation with my CI, 3937, we were talking about the aspects of the Peter Curtin case and these fun facts that I had Googled during the show. They are fun (laughs) facts. And so he brought up a, I don't know, what do you call it? I can't think of it right now. Anyways, the conversation steered into the direction of how ejaculation impacts testosterone. Oh. Mm. So there was a study done, and I'm just going to go over the abstract of this study. (laughs) Sorry. Perfect intro. I know. So the purpose of the study was to gain an understanding about the relationship between ejaculation and testosterone levels in a man. So they had a bunch of participants and, you know, what came of this study, and we can post the link, but essentially, if you can remain abstinent, is that the word abstinent? Um, Yeah. It's abstinent. Okay, sure. If you can refrain from ejaculating, it impacts your testosterone levels. So if you ejaculate too much, you you actually don't have good testosterone levels. So hmm. to give the optimum testosterone levels for a man, which is important to have good testosterone levels, it is every seven days to <laughs> ejaculate. Oh. Well, I think most of the people we know don't have good levels of testosterone. Right. (laughs) The study says that, you know, ejaculation is the precondition and the beginning of the special periodic serum testosterone level variations, which would not occur without ejaculation. The results showed that ejaculation caused variations were characterized by a peak in testosterone on the seventh day of abstinence. So probably the day when they're the most horny. (laughs) And are likely to restart the cycle. And honestly, maybe the most angry. Oh, fuck. If you need that as a release valve, let it out. It's an interesting topic, and it unfortunately ties into the Peter Curtin case because he ejaculated too much. So we could assume from this study then that he did not have high testosterone levels. He had enough. 
unfortunately he had the rage didn't quit with that one no (laughs) but essentially if you're looking for your optimum testosterone levels then you will abstain from sex for seven days and then you will achieve your maximum testosterone level boost see good Good advice to you gentlemen We can post the link if anyone is interested in learning more about testosterone and ejaculation. You're welcome. I love that this came up. We didn't even think about it when we were doing the episode. No, no. And yeah, anyways, I appreciate my CI and the fact that we can have these types of conversations. (laughs) Amazing. So, yes. Anyways, that is the housekeeping that I had for you, ejaculation and testosterone. All right. Well, I have nothing. So it's not my turn. Okay. You guys are so good. It's my turn. I was like, do I have to go? No. (laughs) I'm like, I'm waiting for your story, Hannah. (laughs) I almost talked about my intestinal issues and I decided not to, but I just did. Anywho. We can talk about the fact that we are recording tonight and it is my birthday. So I am having a plentiful amount of beverages. I've gotten tropical. Tropical. Woo. (laughs) And I don't have to go to work tomorrow so that's awesome it's gonna be a good day and i ate just ate like eight oh pounds my god of sushi I know, that was amazing get drunk. Looking, you're so like, full of sushi i could taste it through the photo i know it looks so good <sighs> i'm halfway done with my tall boy and i don't quite feel it yet and yeah. i was able to pronounce testosterone and ejaculation so i think I'm doing you're doing good. great and you're the not even is, like, the one telling the story up. so you don't have to be articulate Woo. no uh, nor do I. So, Sarah, you have to be articulate. That's <laughs> I'll a try. rule on the podcast that the storyteller <laughs> must be articulate every time. I will try. We always are. Shanae. Shanae, yes. Cheney. Well, it's like there's that town, uh, oh god, I think it is. Well, I think it's Touche. And I can't remember what it's called. It's by Walla Walla. We, have, we always just say, touch it, but it's not what it's called. Oh, touch it. It's not Touche <laughs> either. Maybe it is. I don't it's know. right by Walla Walla? Yeah. Anyways, Marty, chime in. What is it called? <laughs> two shit? No, that's dumb. Two shits? <laughs> two shit. I don't two, give two shits. shits. I don't give two shits what this town's called. <laughs> I did get to use this one. You guys will be proud of me. I love this one. So it's, hey, we got to split up. I'm going to go left and you go fuck yourself. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> that is good. I like it. Okay. All right. Okay. Well. <laughs> Too shit near Walla Walla. Now I got to Google <laughs> While you're it's Googling a, it. It's a better search for your um your NSA agent, at least. Yeah. Teddy. Teddy. Poor Teddy. Teddy, here's some PG stuff <gasps> for you. And there's a Morris. Hi, Morris. Oh, just hi, ate. buddy. He's right. happy. So we are solidly in June now, right? For when this is released. 6-6. Six, six. I was like, are we? Ooh. Yeah. So, in honor of Pride Month, I purposefully searched for cases that I could bring a little bit more light to and things that maybe some listeners haven't heard of. And, like, I hadn't heard of this one. It's probably a lot more well-known than I am because I am clueless and I just listen to my few podcasts that I enjoy other than our own, obviously. Mm-hmm. And But there have been overlaps with other shows like Criminal Minds, Hannah. <gasps> I was just watching it. Because they always cover, like, tangentially other serial killers that kind of match different oh, yeah. MOs or whatever that the ones that they're following. So it's kind of, like, loosely mm-hmm. based. So I'll be telling you today about the story of Colin Ireland um, in the UK. 
this one mainly spoke to me because of the victims that he chose and the way he went about it. And I just think that raising awareness um, of the way that police kind of let this one not go, but like didn't do their due diligence because of the sensitivity surrounding the issue at the time. And I feel like there's still a lot more to go on that. But I, I wanted to do this oh, kind 100%. of like a bit in in honor of Pride Month and just kind of say like, I'm, you know, trying to acknowledge <laughs> to the best of my ability. I'm not an expert in this, but yeah. Anyway. I do have a quick side tangent, just real quick. Yeah. The president of the TCT fan club, otherwise known as my sister, said that if we end up doing Patreon, we should do, it should be Criminal Minds <gasps> themed. Ooh. Yes. Off the episodes with who they're based on and shit. That's such a good idea. Or we could just do some fun, you know, like a couple times a year, we could do a Criminal Minds themed type episode because that would be. I love we, it. We talk about Criminal Minds a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Fun idea. So thanks, TT, for that. And then she also did confirm that she will be bringing me high shoes back. <gasps> I saw that on Facebook today. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, TT. And also, uh, she got a new kitten today, and I will send you oh, yay. a picture of that. So he's not named yet, but when he gets a name, then we can get him added to Murder Men's. But he's so sweet. Well, I don't name it. him Colin, because this guy fucking blows. Okay. <laughs> Kitty, new Murder Men's. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyways, side tangent done. Love it. All right, let's dive in. So Colin Ireland was born on March 16th, 1954 in Dartford, Kent, which is just to the east of London proper, to an unmarried poor teenage couple. So his mother was only 17 when she gave birth. Okay. His father left the family pretty much immediately after he was born. So abandoned his teenage girlfriend and their son. Um, his father's identity is actually a bit of a mystery because he isn't listed on the birth certificate and Ireland, as I'll be referring to him, doesn't ever actually know what his name was even. So that's totally in the Interesting. ether. Yeah. So his mother raised him and they had a had to move a lot in their struggle to make ends meet because she's like a teen mom. Yeah. Uh-huh, in the 50s. Teenager. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is 50s, in the UK at that time. Probably graduate high school uh, yeah, at this right. point. Um, so over the course of six years, they moved nine times. And like, you can understand what that does to a kid. You don't have friends. You're always the new kid. And he actually was also very kind of gangly and spindly for a child and just was constantly bullied. So, um, they also at least part of the time stayed in homeless shelters for women and children. And Ireland would later go on to state that this was degradation personified. But, I mean, it's better than sleeping in the gutter on a piece of cardboard, so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, ah, be mad at your dad, not your mom. It sounds like your mom is trying, at least. Yeah. Who was also 17. She was just tethered to you much closer. Let's not ban abortion. Then, in the, ner- the early 1960s, um, she married a man by the last name of Saker. And Colin's last name was changed to match the family's surname at the time. And although his stepfather had a job as an electrician, the work was sporadic and they remained pretty financially unstable. So they still weren't really doing so hot. Did the stepfather take his last name back after Colin's crimes became <laughs> known? Uh, that's coming up. Okay. So. It's like, you're in Ireland for sure. <laughs> you're not fine. 
Saker was actually a pretty kind stepfather to him. And I mean, they were kind of buddy-buddy. But because of his tumultuous upbringing so far, he found it really difficult to be able to settle in and, and feel trusting of anybody. So yeah, he'd been, I mean, to six different schools during that time, right? Like between mm-hmm. the ages of five and 10. That's too many moves. You don't have any friends. You don't Way have any stability. Moves. And that's really damaging, oh, yeah. I feel like, as a, for a child, especially for one that's like living on and off the streets. Children need consistency in their lives. Absolutely. It's an important part of providing them with a good environment to grow up and to be able to learn. So if he's constantly moving, I mean, he's not necessarily even going to be doing well in school. He's going to be distracted or tired or, you know, or if he's out in the elements, he's going to be sick. So, I mean, there's so mm-hmm. much that goes along with that. So, And who and, knows what he's having to see his mom do in order to make ends meet, too. We yeah. have no idea about what that was like for him. Yeah. And he's not able to form any socialization bonds, so he's not learning any of that either. Precisely. Yeah. Nope. So as such, he became accustomed to being the new kid in school, and because of his thin frame, was just constantly bullied, like I said. So he ended up avoiding school. Like, whenever he could, he would just be like, I don't feel good, I'm not going to go. Or he would skip, or he would be late. And when he was late, they would punish his tardiness by beating him with a cane. Oof. Yeah, well. Because it's the 50s. Yeah. Yeah, they did that shit back then. Understandably, Ireland didn't have a whole lot of luck with his education from all the skipping and tardiness and such. Again, also near zero social skills or personal development because he did not have a normal upbringing. He was dealt really just a shit hand super early in life. But I don't want to make excuses because there are people who go through stuff like this and still come out and can be well-adjusted adults. Mm -hmm. So by 1964, the Sakers were in trouble. His stepfather's work opportunities were drying up, um, they were being fewer and further between, and the family was evicted from the place that they were living. His mother also was pregnant at the time and figured out that they couldn't afford to feed two children's mouths, so they made the decision to place him into foster care because she couldn't afford to provide for him. Wait, which one? Colin or the baby that's not been born yet? Colin. Yeah, oh, the one so she's bu- picking on born baby. Is he? This is 1964. He is 10. I've had a trial run with you and yeah, I'm going to start over with this new one. It didn't work out. I'm just not feeling it. Well, because one of them, the daddy's still there for too. And so yeah. maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Daddy could get a job. Mr. Saker kind of has a job. Like he's kind of like the handyman electrician. Could but could get a better job. Yeah. Daddy could get a stable job. Come on, daddy. Come on, daddy. You can't be a daddy <laughs> if you don't have a job. <laughs> not that kind of daddy. <laughs> So family's evicted, Ireland's placed into foster care because she couldn't afford, so he's basically been abandoned by the only stability that he's ever had. There's nothing here. Yeah. And then when they were able to find a new home, she invited him back. So, oh, sure, yeah, come live with us again. Yeah, so. Did they have to adopt him back? I don't think so. I think it was like, I don't know if it's like officially foster care, but they gave him up to... The powers that be. I don't know what it was called Can at the I time. Can I put my husband in foster care temporarily? <laughs> I mean, he's not your dependent, is he? Well. I think it's different for a minor. As far as the kitchen goes, I don't think yes. anyone who's not a minor can be in foster care. I wonder what about elderly people, though. Because the elderly can be abused as easily as the youth can. Oh, absolutely yeah. they can. Yeah. Especially if you have, dem- I guess not foster care, but you have uh, someone speak for you. Anywho. Yeah. I don't know. There's different terminology, and I didn't dive into that on this side. Sure. No. But they invited him back. Once they, within the year, they were somewhat stable again and were able to find a new place to live. They invited him back. 
But soon after that, Mr. Saker walked out on the family, and his mother was now left with two children to feed, clothe, and house on pretty much no income. And she didn't really have any skills that were, like, marketable, really. So, yeah, yeah, it was really rough. So in 1966, when he was 12, um, his mom remarried again, but Ireland refused this time to take the man's surname and instead changed it back to Ireland. Uh, Okay. Okay. Is so, Ireland his mom's maiden name, or is that the yes. name of his father? Okay, he doesn't know that's his father's his mom's last name, name at all. Is Ireland? Yeah, nope, that's a mystery. Okay, because he wasn't listed on the birth certificate. Yeah, and like if he hadn't been, but the last name was Ireland, they're like, well, what's the first name of the father? Then you can at least tell me that. You know, like, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so around this time, the family lived in Sheerness, Kent. Ireland was approached multiple times in this town by older men wanting to have sex with him. Great. On one occasion, he was working at a fairground for the summer trying to make a little bit of extra money for the family, still at age 12, and a man offered him a necklace to give to his mother in exchange for sex. Ew. Yeah. At another time, he was in a public toilet when a man appeared over the top of the stall and watched him. Holy crap, that's creepy. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is going on? The next encounter was at a movie theater where a man that he knew, his optician, spied, like, uh, found him in the crowd and called him over to ask for sexual favors in the middle of a movie theater. The man that is gives him glasses? Yeah, like, I'm astounded. The audacity. And then the next one that's reported is a man working at a secondhand store had just approached him for sex while he was trying to find clothes. This kid can't go anywhere. Yeah. And like, he's like, what the fuck is 12, going on in this 13 town, or so. And like when this is, yeah. Well, a pedophile might be able to sniff out a vulnerable kid. Mm-hmm. You are less likely to call over Brian, the kid that has two f- parents and everything. Yeah. But how many pedophiles are in this fucking town? I don't think we want to know how many pedophiles. Have you ever done the thing where you see how many sex offenders live around you? Megan's oh, lot yes. all the time. It's a lot. Some of them were like, oops, you peed in public and now you have public indecency charges and you have to be on the list for your life. But like, some mm-hmm. of them are really bad. When I lived in Walla Walla, I played volleyball every week with this random assortment of people. I knew some people from the college and then people came from the community too. And then I found out later that one of the guys, he was a middle-aged guy that would come and play. And I found out later, he had molested a boy in a tent. Oh my God. Gross. Glad to be here. Ugh. Ugh. I know. So, and he was like, That's nasty. I got a vibe, but I'm like, maybe he's just an unmarried older man that has a weird vibe. But no, it was the lizard brain nose. It was a real vibe. The lizard brain nose. Ireland escaped each time without any physical abuse or sexual contact with these men. But the idea of these older men wanting him and like finding him and offering some sort of monetary reward for these pedophilic deeds. Just they, yeah. they left him frustrated and filled with rage, and he had really no outlet. Because he's like, on one hand, we're poor, but I shouldn't have to resort to this sort of thing, and how dare they, they assume even ask. that they can buy me? Like, all sorts of, yeah. It's just all sorts of wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who could he tell? Like, he had nobody to go to about this. It was the 60s, like, I don't know. Bad. Bad all around. So without any outlet and with a lot of frustration with everything that he's had to put up with so far, 
when he's 16, he committed his first crime, technically, that's on record. He wanted to run away from this town and all of its creepy men, which I don't blame him at all. Uh, yeah. Good move. So to try to flee to London, he stole four pounds. Doesn't seem like that much. Nope. He just wanted to take it out of there and like a way to be able to- Bus ticket. Yep. And so, but he was caught and then he was sent to a place called Finchton Manor. And Finchton Manor was founded by George Aubrey Lyward in like the late 1800s. And George Aubrey Lyward was this British educationist and psychotherapist. And he wanted the school to be, quote, a therapeutic community for the delinquent, disturbed or disturbing boys. I'm sorry, disturbing boys. (laughs) Disturbing. So like troubled boys who have a future if they are given the proper education and environment to grow in. I guess it sounds nice, but the 1880s. Late 1800s. I don't imagine it was very nice. I mean, it was actually like a really pretty manor. Like it's a castly kind of big house. Yeah. Like I think of manors as being like in the fuck. What was it? The Lion Witch and Wardrobe movie Chronicles of Narnia oh, or whatever. Yeah. Like that house yeah. is huge and on like a gorgeous estate and everything. And like they could definitely house and school several. I don't know, dozens of boys or whatever. Right? Like yeah, that sort of thing. That sort of place. To send someone off. And it actually, it does cost a fee, but that fee gets paid for by the courts that as, like assume that this is going to be the reformative care for a boy who is showing troubling outlook. That's nice. Yeah. It's kind of the type of place, too, where, like, because they're only accepting boys who uh-huh. are at least a bit intelligent, but definitely have a lot of emotional problems, Ireland is definitely not free from his bullying, once again. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. So his fees are paid by the local city council or county council as part of his care order for his charges. And then soon after he moves in there and starts attending, he was teased and bullied. And in revenge, he set fire to one of the boy's belongings. And he later said that he had recurring nightmares of the fire, but he always had had a lifelong fascination with flames. I mean, this is on the triad, but also fair. Light that fucking asshole's things on fire. Like, at least he's not causing direct damage to the boy, but yeah, like, (laughs) so still I'm like, I'm troubled because it's a shitty upbringing, it's a shitty situation, there's really no positive way out, like, yeah, Hmm. something's gotta give. Yeah. And they kind of understood this, they didn't file any charges, but despite there being no charges filed against him for this arson, Ireland was sent away from Finchton Manor at that point. Mm. He immediately, once he was sent away, ran away to London. And there he was homeless and penniless and resorted to robbery. So now he's 17. He's caught and sentenced to spend time at Halsley Bay, which is a Borstal. And I looked this up. Borstals are kind of like detention youth centers. Okay. Okay. And they were these like notorious British reform schools that were infamous for being like, I don't know, they're infamous for like their brutality, basically. Yeah. Um, they have they have okay. slightly more malicious means of enforcing rules and such. It's almost like one of those boot camp kind of like we're gonna shape you up kind of yeah. thing. Like this this little other rinky dink place didn't do the job. We'll we'll fix you. Yeah, they tried with feelings. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, despite this, Holsley is still not like the worst that there is. Um, they actually offered therapy and vocational training for anyone who wanted it. So that there's something there. That is something. He needs to get a vocation. He needs, to, yeah, to get a mm. life skill. But of course, he hates it. He doesn't like school at all. He learned not to like school. He learned to not associate learning with anything positive in his life. So he ran away again. 
and then he was caught, and then he served the remainder of his sentence in a even stricter Borstal in Rochester and Grendon. And finally, in 1972, when he was 18, he was released. Because it's like, cool, you're done. No more school for you. All right. <laughs> He's like, fine, thanks. I don't, gone. I don't <laughs> want it. Okay. Um, it's around this time that he meets his first girlfriend, but he ended up feeling pretty listless and unattached in this relationship. And then three years later in 1975, when he was 21, he was found guilty of two counts of burglary, one for stealing a car and damage to property. And then he was sentenced to 18 months in prison for that. So now he's a, no more school. It's prison. Real prison. <laughs> yeah. Like legit prison. But 18 months, I guess, is kind of cut short because he was released in November of 1976. So like less than a year later. Yeah. Because it was December yeah. 75 when he was caught and now it's 76 in November. He went to go live in Swindon, and that's where he meets his second girlfriend. And she was this West Indian woman who was five years older than him and had four children already uh, to a different man. And he finally lost his virginity with this woman. Oh, oh. Was that listless, the other one. Yeah. Okay. So he's 22, loses his virginity, lives with this woman who's five years his senior and has kids already and everything. It's fine to lose your virginity in your, like, 20s. You can lose your virginity sure. whatever you want, but it's a lot to lose it to a woman that already has four kids. <laughs> yes. But she was stable. She had to be stable because she had kids and she had a place to be and a schedule to associate with the children. So, like, yeah. he was looking for something yeah. like that, you know, and, and found solace in, in her. And they lived together for a few months and began planning to get married. Okay. But then in 1977, Ireland was found guilty of something called demanding with menace. <laughs> what is from that? From which I could gather, like, the UK terminology is so weird, but it. It, it means something kind mm -hmm. of like blackmail. Oh. Oh. Okay. So it's like, you better do this for me or else I'll do this kind of thing. And demanding with menace. I like it. For this demanding with menace, he was sentenced to another 18 months in prison. And then in 1980, he was sentenced to an additional two years of imprisonment for robbery. And then in 1981, <sighs> he was imprisoned for attempted deception, which is like attempted theft or evasion. Attempted deception. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You were going to lie, so therefore we're going to imprison you. You're like, just a <sighs> shit liar. Okay. That's interesting. So... He gets out, and then the same year, he meets this woman named Virginia Zamet at a lecture on survivalism, which, from what I could gather, was kind of like a open doors come here about how the human mind works when you are introduced to a situation in which you have to live or die and you choose life kind of thing. Like, Interesting. You do whatever you have okay. to, and he finds kind of that camaraderie with, with Virginia there. She was 36, nine years his senior at this time. Okay. And she also had a daughter who was five. But sadly, Virginia had been confined to a wheelchair after getting into a motor vehicle accident that left her paralyzed at the waist down from the time that she was 24. Oh. So this is but weird. this is going to affect her survivalism. Oh, God. I mean, that's why, that's why she was probably there, right? I keep imagining, like, doomsday preppers survivalism or something. But it, it's not... From the way that, like, the story is laid out, it seems more like that it was a, almost like a TED Talk kind of situation of, like, oh, choosing. it's okay to do bad things when you are under duress. Like, oh, it's not your fault. You know, that not like, that's just not like touting that bad things are okay, but like, people have to do things sometimes to survive and you have to move onward and upward from there kind of thing. Like, take your second chances mm -hmm. for what they are. And I'm not so sure about this whole paralyzed beneath the waist thing, because if she's 36 and has a five-year-old daughter and she was paralyzed at age 24... How'd that do? Uh, I think that could do. 
Yeah, because, I mean, if your stuff still works on the inside, I mean, you could have a C-section, you can have an assisted labor. I mean, it's still possible. I suppose. All right. Anyway, I kind of, like, raised my eyebrow at that, and I wasn't really sure. I just wanted to... I'm having trouble picturing a good time when that happens. (laughs) Yeah. Like, cool. I just want a kid. We'll just wait here, I guess. Yeah, like, I don't know what that entailed. It doesn't sound promising. So... The couple actually were happily married in 1982. Colin adored his wife and stepdaughter, and the family lived in this estate housing in Holloway, um, where he was known to the locals as the Gentle Giant, and he just was loving life and everything. But then in 1985, he was caught and sentenced for six months for going equipped to cheat. Sorry, what? what? The term is going equipped to cheat. I love this. I don't know specifically what he was going to cheat on or in or whatever, but like my first thought was like, well, he was caught with a pack of condoms that weren't for his wife. I know, right? That's against the law now. Going equipped to cheat. But like technically it could be like if he was going to go and like fake someone out of a monetary value. I could see that or like like falsifying something in a way that makes it worth more money or something like that. So regardless of that, he was caught again and sentenced for six months. And it was during this time, too, that Virginia found that Colin had actually cheated on her as well. Oh, um, so, and so he... they divorced in 1987. So as happy as they were, he wasn't that happy. Oh, so I retract my awe from two minutes ago. Yeah. And he really was uh, arrested for being equipped to cheat. I mean, I don't know if it was to cheat on her or to cheat cheat, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> During this time, Ireland supported himself through various odd jobs, including being a restaurant chef, a volunteer fireman, and a bouncer at various bars, including a gay nightclub. Fireman would be an interesting profession for him. He had nightmares about fire when he was a kid. So I bring this back to my first ever episode that I had recorded regarding the volunteer fireman. Oh, yeah. Who was involved in a case in which, yeah. 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 The girl had been sex trafficked but then also i had like kind of linked together the fact that like sometimes volunteer firemen may also also really like setting fires and studying them and seeing Mm -hmm. the commotion yeah and returning returning to the scene because that's your job getting to watch it all because you're supposed to be there and then being the hero and potentially jizzing your pants like (laughs) peter or hardly oh god but like in the fire suit i don't know Hmm. Uh, who cleans does someone else have to use that Yeah. I hope they have to clean their own God, yeah. It has to be gross in there. Ugh. All the sweat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In 1989, he walks into a Devonshire pub owned by this landlady named Janet Young. It was reported that he just stood in the doorway and all of the conversations in the pub just stopped and everyone turned to look at him. Because by now, he's not this tiny gangly little dude anymore. He's like a full-grown man and some muscles to share with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Janet was like, oh, she had been living with her two children in this like little apartment above the pub. And within the week, Ireland had moved in with them. So another three months, they're married. Damn. The relationship between them turned sour pretty quickly, though. And Ireland used some fear tactics to try and control his wife into doing his bidding. So after one Easter, Janet and the children had gone away to visit family and Colin cleared out the house above the pub and also her bank account. Oh, hey. Oh. So she was flat broke and she couldn't even pay to buy tickets for their bus fare home oh from God. the trip. Oh my God. What a fucking asshole. 
So she and the children were forced into a homeless shelter at that point. <gasps> he just and took her house? four kids. Uh, not four kids, two kids. But yeah, he took everything in the house, sold it all, and then cleared out her bank account. Uh, the this fuck, is beyond dude? fear tactics. Like, he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, prior to that even, like, the, ma- the marriage had turned sour yeah. and, like, she was just kind of like, okay, like, you know, trying to keep him happy all the time because he scared her. Mm, yeah. She would never hear from him again. Damn. Okay. Wow. I assume she never got her pub back? Mm, I don't think so. I don't know. That part was just kind of like, whoo, All right. left in the Goodbye. wind. I would imagine like some really nice fairy tale, you know, alternate reality in which the community banded together and helped buy different shares of it back and helped her get back on her feet. But I don't know that. Eh. We can believe. Okay. Ireland next popped up in this um, little town, Southend-on-Sea in Essex. And he actually worked at a homeless shelter while being homeless himself. All right. Even though he had all that money. The manager there remembered him, though, for his homophobia, recounting a story in which Ireland had wanted to get rid of a homeless gay man who had been causing problems at the shelter. So when the manager was trying to lighten the air in the room, he jokingly asked how Colin would even do that, and Colin replied in all seriousness that he would force snooker balls down the man's throat. Um, oh. And snooker balls are like pool balls. Uh, Billiards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Not good. So when other staff started making complaints about Ireland inappropriately touching female colleagues there, he was fired and he left. So then his yeah. his next job involved breaking up wooden pallets, and that's not an easy job. No. He's like done. He's just so fed up and hates the way that his life's going. Nobody likes him. He has zero social skills. He just tries to get what he can out of people when he can. And so at this point... He's feeling pretty, I don't know if destitute's the word, but like just done with the way that he's lived his life so far. So this year, 1993, he makes a New Year's resolution. Oh, fuck. He said to himself at age 39, he's going to find his outlet and he's going to become a serial killer. Oh. Oh. Hashtag goals. Like he actually wants to become a serial killer. He has been fascinated by them and had spent many hours meticulously studying books about serial killers. He was aware of the geographic profiling that helps investigators figure out like where the killer might live Mm -hmm. based on where their crimes are committed, which is usually in like a certain Mm -hmm. radius of about seven to 10 miles around their home. And so for this reason, Ireland chose London as his hunting grounds because they're deliberately far away from his place where he lived in Southend-on-Sea. Okay. So, 1993. The Colhern is a gay pub in West London, which was originally called the Colhern Arms Public House. It was originally segregated into two bars, one for the straight crowd and one for the kind of secret gay community at a time when homosexuality was illegal. Mm-hmm. So in the 1970s, it became notorious for being a leather bar. Ooh. With the blacked out windows, dark curtains, attracting an international crowd, including members like Freddie Mercury, (gasps) Kenny Everett, Mike Proctor, Anthony Perkins, Rupert Everett, Ian McKellen, (gasps) and Derek Jarman. Ah, famous. So pretty cool. Yeah, big deal. Leather men, right, like they wear the chaps, they have these leather jackets, there's keychains, and there's color-coded handkerchiefs that tell people what you're into this is like their normal clientele it's a very straightforward way like yeah like i like being taught i love it i don't mind the waving my handkerchief around being like this is what i like but i think they just put them in their pockets and then they don't even have to wave it it's like find a pink handkerchief and you're good to go like i think it's just like look for the handkerchief and find out you know 
Okay. So then there's no, like, misunderstandings, too, later on. I'm going to look it up. Oh, yeah. I don't know what the color scheme is at all. Mine would have something to do with food or alcohol. <laughs> Mine would literally a be a thing? sushi roll sticking out of my pocket. <laughs> a sushi roll? A little, a little piece of salmon just flopping out there. <laughs> That's called hanky panky. Oh, I love that. And it goes that. in your back pocket. Yeah. Oh, that's not a helpful one. Oh God. <laughs> Is there like crazy stuff? Uh, <laughs> I need to know. The first one is red left, and it's fist fucker. Oh my god! Oh, wants to shrimp. What shrimp? No, sorry, Teddy. I'm Google you. What shrimp? <laughs> Orange on the right just means nothing now, so just leave me alone. Cold water shower sex is a specific one. Oh. Shrimping is the sexual act of sucking on another person's toes. Ew. Ew. That's worse to me than the fist fuckery. I don't like that at all. Now you know. Oh, Oh, you can desire a lover or you want a one night stand. You just have to make sure you're putting the handkerchief in the right pocket because left and right matters. Yeah. Looking for chicken or is chicken? I would need a book. Chicken? This is a pamphlet. Chicken tenders? I don't know. Kudos to these guys for knowing what they want and what color to look for. Because I would be like, I don't know what this means. I'm I'm looking at a literal (laughs) pamphlet from the Boston Eagle. Oh my gosh. And so there was a a code. What's the turquoise code? Let's see here. Aqua? Yeah. Let's say, well, that's the shower sex. Left is hot water. Right is cold water. And I hate shower (laughs) sex with every inch of my being. So I'm definitely not worth it. There's no reason for it. It's stupid. Let me have the shower to myself. It's cold. One of you is going to die of, like, frostbite. I know. It's stupid. I always get cold. (laughs) There's just no reason for it. But use the hot shower. I'm like... But even still, if you're not in the stream of the water, your ass is freezing to death. You could do Robin's Egg Blue and you're either, on the left, you're a 69er, and on the right, you're anything but 69 <laughs> One's my kink. One is an absolutely not. I do not. not want this. What's pink? Let's see here. Pink is likes orgies on the left and not into orgies on the right. Sarah, what's your favorite color? Oh, interesting. Oh, mine? Yeah. Green? Green. Okay, on the left, you are a hustler selling, and on the right, you are a trick looking to buy. (laughs) Wait, what? Either I'm selling sex or I'm buying sex. Okay. Yellow is surprisingly not surprisingly about golden showers. Not surprising. What is brown? No. Oh, no. Yeah. It's uh, shitty or shitter. (laughs) And there's also, um, but if you want to go the other way, there's beige into anything but shit okay if, if you put it on the right that means nothing but rimming this is complicated i didn't know there was right that's super complicated i'm saying kudos to these men for like knowing what they want knowing what they can look for and not look for like i would be like okay it's on the left but it's this color i, I was don't like, know let if me i want pull my pamphlet. I'm like is my, is, <laughs> am i wearing the right handkerchief sarah what do you think my favorite color is black oh or like a burgundy black is on the left, whipper, and right, whippy. Ooh. Maroon. Oh, there's maroon and burgundy. How do you tell the difference? And like in a dim nightclub even, how would you know? There are some like... Between aqua and robin's egg blue. And light blue. You've got a flashlight. A flashlight. Yeah. Mar- <laughs> this is amazing. Burgundy is uh, on the left into razor blades and on the right no. looking for no. same. I don't know what that one means. 
Maroon is enema giver or enema receiver. See, no, no, no. Nobody needs an enema. You gotta make sure you put it on the right pocket. Like, you're like, what do I want tonight? You're like, oh, fuck, I fucked up. It was supposed to be on the opposite side. What is orange? Oh, orange is left anything, anytime, and right is nothing now. I'd probably be a right orange at the moment. I'm just here for the vibes. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just here to have drinks and some fucking chicken wings, okay? Oh, well, maybe you're looking for chicken. <laughs> or you could be chicken. I don't know what that means either. I don't know if that's some, like, It's gotta other... be something related. Is, like, chicken versus shrimp? Yeah. Ooh, toes versus something. Now I gotta Google what is chicken sexually. Thank well, you. It was, like, the idea of, like, the baby bird, right? Oh. Uh... <laughs> Anyways. I'm sorry, Teddy. I don't want to yuck any yums, but, like, there's certain things in here that are very niche. (laughs) Uh, So, sexual chicken? I don't even know what this means. Did it come up as something? Like the game of regular chicken, but sexual. Oh. Oh, so, like, you're, like, slowly putting your hand up thigh, maybe, and playing chicken with each other? Oh, I was thinking, like, chicken, like, in a pool. Where you're on their shoulders. Oh. <laughs> it says two people, the same or opposite, who are usually just friends, flirt, make gestures, make physical contact with each other. They comment, they gesture, they touch. Uh, this is a more updated one, it looks like. And so they've added some more to it. And so I kind of like this one. Mosquito netting. What is that? Are you an outdoor bottom or an outdoor top? Oh. That's kind of nice. Outdoorsy. Outdoorsy. <laughs> mosquito netting (laughs) what do they mean by bottom or top i don't they mm, like front or back they mean who is inserting and who's being the insertee okay got it this was very interesting i'm fascinated i can't stop looking at this (laughs) this is very informative there's a hanky code for lesbians wow and basically their code makes a little bit more sense left is always basically top and right is bottom which okay. actually might be close to what it is for the men, too. I wasn't paying that much attention. but I think on like the average basis from what you were describing, it seems like left was the giver and right was yeah. the taker. That makes it a little bit easier to remember what's mm-hmm. happening. <laughs> All right. You're like, trying to put your hanky in and you're like, left, right, what side? My left? <laughs> <laughs> is this a photographic left? I don't know. Anyway, that was very educational. That was Hanky Panky. All that right. should be a fucking board game. It has enough rules, it seems like. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, Colher and Arms Pub is this pub where these men come, are very well known for like, or well, very not well known, but like knowledgeable of these color codes already, I guess. Okay. And they know what they like. Yeah, they already know what they like when they walk in there. They know what they're looking for. A lot of straight people have no idea. Yeah, that's true. Maybe not as adventurous sexually. This is going to be weird. You don't have to be. You can find what you enjoy. I was just going to say, if based on just the gay man that I know, it feels like being a gay man in your 20s is exhausting. Yeah. You have to be so fucking fit. And you got to <laughs> be take like... Very good care of themselves. Oh my God. Yeah. And like social i hate it (laughs) you can't be an introvert it seems like a lot of work honestly oh yeah and like it's like continuous extrovert energy all the time Mm -hmm. everything seems loud i mean i don't want to make any sweeping generalizations no i'm just saying "Mm -mm." (laughs) well and from our proximity to 
San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that too. That, that's kind of coloring a little bit too. Uh huh. So the Cole Hearn earned a nickname called the Clone Hearn because of how everybody kind of dressed going uh, in there. All the same, but like <laughs> in leather. Yeah, it was internationally known by 1965. So this is like the place to be. So in 1993, when Ireland frequented it, um, the Colhearns clientele used those color-coded handkerchiefs that we've been talking about to indicate whether they like to be kind of top or bottom. So I guess it really migrated from there, depending on what their specialties were. It took us a long time to figure out right or left, but we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, they might have used different colors. They might have used it left might and right already. It too, because I feel like that one was a pamphlet from a specific place. But it's probably yeah. pretty much the same everywhere you go. I don't know, like, what it was in 1993 versus now, but assuming things either migrated or stayed why relatively was, the why same. Why was he there? So he was there. What handkerchief did he wear? I have no idea. Okay, tell me what he looks for and I'll tell you what handkerchief. He pursued men seeking any passive role. Oh, so he's just going for anybody with a right side. And it seemed like he would often seek out men who were looking for a passive role in a sadomasochistic relationship. How about a gray right? A gray right? Desires bondage. Yes. Wasn't orange right like anything goes? Orange left anything goes. Orange right is I'm just here to have a good time. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, that's the one I'm going to be wearing if I ever go. (laughs) I just want to be here to people watch and hang out and enjoy the vibes and drinks. (laughs) We're all orange rights, I think. Okay. Unless we feel differently whenever we get here, but. Okay. (laughs) I doubt that even if we wore anything else, if we are three ladies in a gay bar, they're going to say, no, thanks. I know. (laughs) I don't want to touch you. (laughs) Which is actually kind of nice. We're here for the chicken wings. We're kind of here not to get touched. But I also, mm. I do have to say, though, that like those establishments are some of the most friendly places. Yeah, the vibes are amazing. It's really like come enjoy and have a good time. Yep. I always wonder as a straight person, though, if I'm intruding because true, I do like the vibe is great. But it's also nice to not be harassed at all. It's nice to not be harassed. But I think, too, like, as long as you're being, you know, supportive of their lifestyle and enjoying the same things that they are, which is, like, fun music and good drinks and a Mm -hmm. a nice crowd, then I can have a good time. Yeah. You're another body on the dance floor, and that's never a bad thing. Mm -mm. Actually, yeah, some of the best dancing I've ever done has been in a gay bar because there's no Mm -hmm. weird groping. Yep. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here we are, 1993, at the Colhern. The evening of March 3rd, Ireland was posing as a top when he met his first victim. Peter Walker was age 45 and was a renowned assistant theater director and choreographer. I guess since he decided he wanted to become a serial killer, he was already homophobic, so he picked his victim pool. Precisely. Okay. I was like, why was he there at all? Okay. Yeah. So Peter did that thing where he accidentally spilt his drink on Ireland. Oh, whoops. And then started chatting him up. And the two left together when Peter invited Ireland back to his flat. On the way, Ireland put on a pair of gloves. And at the apartment, their role play began. So first Ireland gagged him with condoms that had been knotted together and then bound him with cord by all fours to the four-poster bed. Okay. Hmm. But then the supposed foreplay took a very dark turn, and as soon as he was tied up, Ireland revealed his murder kit to Peter, which contained a Fucking knife, hell. more gloves, and a spare change of clothes for after he was done. Oh, Jesus. He really thought this through. Yeah. He wanted to be a serial killer, and he'd already studied all He did all, all the studying, it. you're right. Yep. 
So he viciously beat Peter with a belt and his fists and made him beg for his life. He then put a plastic bag over Peter's head. Oh, man. And when Peter was close to suffocating, Ireland removed it. And then Peter recovers, catches his breath, and before he's fully okay again, Ireland puts the bag back on. Of course. And he repeats this over and over again. Oh, my God. Torturing him, getting high on the power that he felt in, in his hands of being able to hold this man's life, literally. And so eventually Ireland didn't remove the bag. So Peter dies by suffocation and Ireland would later compare this buzz of this first kill to the same feeling that he had when he lost his virginity. Okay. I had a okay, meh feeling when I lost my virginity. I mean, it's probably different for a guy. (laughs) I guess maybe. It's easier for them to finish. Well, I guess it might also make a difference if you're losing your virginity to somebody who's experienced versus two virgins losing their virginity to each other. Yeah. More like, what are we doing? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. So he's high on his first kill. He cleans the apartment of any forensic traces, knows what to do. This is Wipes everything down. This is Peter Walker's apartment. Yep. Peter Walker is still tied up on the bed, gagged with the knotted condoms in his mouth, and then he shoves another one up his nostril. Okay. Okay. While he was cleaning the apartment, Ireland found paperwork and evidence that Peter had been HIV positive. So he's like, uh oh. Good riddance. He's just the so AIDS mad. crisis, too. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, that's when he was like incensed and like started doing nasty things like that to the body, and he shoved another condom all the way up his nostril. Just. Don't if you don't want to. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing different gonna come out of this if you do that now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he never even. I don't think they ever even had any sexual contact. I think he was just like, oh, okay. Right? Yeah. He had tied him up, and then it never got any further because that was when he started killing him. Okay. Yeah. He then also placed two teddy bears in a 69 position on top of Peter's body. Why? Ah. There were some notes kind of to signify innocence lost as being part of like the message or whatever that he was conveying. I kind of feel like in the gay scene in the early 90s, innocence was lost because AIDS was starting to ravage that community at that time. So after this, Ireland then returned to erasing any trace of his presence. He bagged up his own clothes and then he waited patiently for the morning rush hour at 7 a.m. when he left and then walked out into the street and blended into the crowd. On the train back, he tossed his clothes that he used during the murder out the window. So they're just laying by the train tracks out in the middle of the countryside on his way back to his home. Walker's body was still undiscovered two days later on March 5th, 1993, when Ireland telephoned a London tabloid newspaper, Mm. The Sun. He said he was concerned about the dead man's dogs that were left unattended in the flat. And when asked for clarification by the person on the phone, he said, it was my New Year's resolution to murder a human being. What? Yep, he fucking tells them. So then he hangs up and they don't know who called. It was anonymous. Police discover Peter's body eventually after the tip. They assumed that it was a result of one of those S&M bondage games gone wrong. Because he's still tied up. Mm-hmm. What kind yeah. of dogs did he I did, did he have dogs? Doesn't, doesn't say. Yeah, okay. he had dogs. Aww. They had no evidence and their manhunt was further hampered then by a recent judicial ruling that acts of sadomasochistic sex were illegal for consenting British adults. Which It is like, doesn't the change fuck? the fact that his oh. ass got murdered. Yeah. yeah. But it looks like it could have been like, oh, you were trying to do like the suffocation thing or like, you know, okay. whatever, but it didn't go right. So, so that just they're gives really worried about. Yeah. No, but they're 
But because of this, though, right, because now it's illegal, potential victims are also really reluctant to share anything that they might have known with the authorities. And so all they have to go on were really just the autopsy results, which is literally just that the man died by choking. So it's really hard to tell whether it was deliberate because of the state of the body when they found it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because he's still tied up. It looks like it was part of the game. It could be completely 100% staged, too, because, I mean, they weren't engaged in this type of activity, right? Necessarily. Because he he did away with him before, like, anything actually happened. Right. So, like, they don't have any evidence, but they don't know that the that this foreplay wasn't just an accident. That was something okay. carried too far, is what I'm saying. So, like, because of the nature of this type of foreplay, because oftentimes there is choking and stuff involved and suffocation involved with, like, becoming aroused for that type of lifestyle, like, maybe that was something that they weren't prepared to be able to examine in a way. And nobody wanted to come forward in the gay community because they were worried about if they are experts in this, which is now illegal, Mm. they can't share with the police what they know because then they're in trouble too, right? So, yeah. Okay. But a crime has occurred. A crime has occurred. A man is dead. They don't know whether or not it's accidental. They don't see any evidence. There was no, like, real brutality or anything that they could find. I know. Okay. But what I'm saying is, like, they don't... <laughs> Sarah! Why don't... <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to explain this. Like, that's all I have here, but... I got it. Okay. I know. I just have, I have troubles with it, but I got it. <laughs> yeah. A man is dead. I'm the sorry. police are trying, but they don't know how else to pursue this. There's no evidence there because he did a really fucking good job cleaning up everything that might have indicated anyone else's presence because he wiped the fingerprints and all of that, right? So, it's gone. Well, someone had to fucking be there if all of Peter's limbs were tied to something. Right. But it's an accident or it's purposeful. Either way, a man's dead and they don't have any evidence. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. it's an ongoing investigation. It's not the end, but it's like... Right, okay. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I don't know why, like, this is a thing, but... <laughs> I'm sorry. What I was saying was that if S&M acts were already illegal, then this was a crime whether it was an accident or not. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, like, they can't find anybody to pursue because even if there was an eyewitness, nobody else wants to even come forward saying, oh, I saw a man with this description. Oh, yeah. So, like, Mm -hmm. they've got nothing to go on. Um, So it's an open investigation. They're trying to figure it out, but they're, like, not even sure what direction to go. Two months later, Ireland returns to the Colhern and then met a 37-year-old man who was a librarian, um, and his name was Christopher Dunn. And Christopher Dunn invites him back to his flat. Ireland repeated the process of tying, handcuffing, teasing, like, this is part of the foreplay. And then as soon as he was fully tied up, beat and tortured the victim, going as so far to hold a lighter flame this time to Christopher's testicles. Ah! Realizing that this wasn't S&M foreplay anymore, Mm. Christopher tried to bargain for his life by giving Ireland his bank and pin number. And then Ireland, with this information, suffocated him by stuffing multiple pieces Ah. of cloth into his mouth. He then used Dunn's pin number and his bank card to be able to withdraw $200 from his account. Not probably the full amount, but yeah, it's not dollars, it'd be pounds, but yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I don't know why I put the dollar sign. (laughs) Dunn's body was discovered days later by a friend. And again, police assume that it was the result of a sex game gone wrong and all the more reason for this type of foreplay to be illegal, Mm. right? This results in them not linking Peter Walker's and Christopher Dunn's deaths together because they are just clueless about this community and don't Mm -hmm. have any insight because nobody comes forward about what's normal and what's not. Okay. And they're not communicating with them either, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That's the nature of it at this time. All right. Two accidents have happened in two months? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. On June, but with the escalation, right, of the burning now. On June 4th, 1993, six days after Christopher Dunn was murdered, Ireland returned to the Colherne pub again. Oh, so this is his hunting grounds. Mm-hmm. This time he meets a man named Perry Bradley, who was a 35-year-old Texas businessman and was the son of a serving U.S. congressman. Oh. Oh. And I tried to look up who, but I'm like, I don't... Like, what's he doing over there? Vacation? Business ventures? I don't know. He had an apartment. So either he was renting the apartment, like, short term, or he went back and forth a lot for his business. It was some fish and chips. (laughs) Yeah. Perry Bradley took Ireland back to his Kensington apartment, and this time Ireland had to persuade Bradley to be tied up by saying that he couldn't get aroused without it. So Bradley was like, that's not my thing, dude. Mm-hmm. Bradley Kelsey, say, how is that my problem? Yeah. <laughs> so he got tied up, but this time he's face down on the bed, and as soon as he's fully tied up, Ireland places a noose around his ah. neck and begins slowly tightening it. <sighs> During this time, he starts demanding Bradley's cash card and his PIN number. He's like, because that he's last like hey, I got time, paid I the last time. Yeah. Threatening his, you know, his life and torturing him with a cigarette lighter if he didn't comply. So Bradley offers to go with Ireland to the ATM, but he refused and made him give him the PIN number and told him to just go to sleep. Which, surprisingly, poor, exhausted Perry Bradley falls asleep. Okay. And while he's asleep, Ireland kills him just by slowly tightening the noose more and more. So it just cuts off his airway. Oh, man. He must have been fucking exhausted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting tortured for hours, the adrenaline. might just like eventually, yeah. I guess it reaches a peak and it just falls off. You can only feel it yep. for so long. Yep. Okay. So at this point, he's got the noose tightened. He places a plastic doll on Bradley's dead body and he poses it to simulate it involved with the sexual act with him. Okay. He then chills out, makes himself a sandwich, cleans up as usual, and then when he felt it was safe in the morning, he left and again blends into the crowd. But at this point, he's not happy. He wants the police to, like, realize that they are all his work, Mm. but not his, but, like, he wants them to name him as a serial killer because that was his his whole goal, right? He's up to three now. It doesn't count if nobody knows about it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So he called the police again days later saying, I did the American. You've got some good leads on my identity from clues at the scene. And he told them that he'd studied the FBI manual for details of technique and the minimum required body count to be able to become a serial killer. I've got the book. I know many how many you have to do, was what <laughs> was he like, said. Oh, you brought sources to the police? He was wrong, though. He thought that it was five and that he was telling the police that he was going to do the other two. Oh. But really, it's three, technically, to be a serial killer. Yeah. So he's already misinformed. But what can you expect from a man who barely went to school? Mm -hmm. So this mention of the FBI manual then prompted the transatlantic phone calls, right, to the FBI. um, And they contacted the ex-FBI agent, Robert Ressler. Oh, my God. For the BSI. Whatever. (laughs) BSI. (laughs) Well, it used to be the behavioral sciences unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was the BS unit for a while. I thought you said BSI, though. I was like, oh. I said I, but I meant you, but whatever. The co-author of all these textbooks on sexual homicide and the FBI crime scenes classification manual, as well as a recent memoir of his own career on how he profiled serial killers for the behavioral science unit, the BSU. Mm -hmm. So for the record, none of Russell's books were ever actually found in Ireland's 
home, but all of them were readily available in all of the like the public libraries yeah. and stuff at the time. So he could have easily have just gone there. So Ressler cooperated with Scotland Yard on profiling the elusive serial killer now. But as usual, police would need some sort of break in the case with actual evidence left behind a fingerprint or something. Come on. Like another crime. To be able to find something on this guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So three days later on June 7th, he goes back to the Colhern. Ireland meets a man named Andrew Collier, who was 33 and was a warden by profession. So Andrew invites him back and at his flat, Ireland ties him up and demands his pin number and cash card, but he refused to comply. So now Ireland's like, well, what the fuck? Why don't you give me your money? <laughs> what the fuck, dude? He's pissed. He's pissed. He's like, well, why? <laughs> and he's not complying. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> Which is like your life or your money. Like, I don't know. I don't know. He might just stand for your principles or something. Yeah. So this enraged Ireland, and he angrily this time strangled him to death. Probably quickly then. Yeah. So probably a bonus. No torture. Yeah. Yeah. Just just a quick death. Ireland was working on cleaning up, and he found some more paperwork stating that Andrew Collier was also HIV positive, which oh, made no. him even more angry. And then so post-mortem, he ended up burning parts of Collier's body and placed a condom on his penis post-mortem. Like, it's really going to help, right? It doesn't fucking matter to you anyway. It's not like you're actually having intercourse with these Yeah, he's not engaging in the actual (laughs) act with them. He's trying to send a message, I guess. I guess. During this cleanup, while he's hanging out at the apartment at night, right, there's this serious loud street fight happening downstairs around one in the morning and so it's outside the apartment building in the street and ireland goes to the window to see what's going on down there and when he's trying to get a better look out the window he placed a hand (gasps) on the bar to kind of like peer out Uh to stabilize himself and this actually ends up being a source of evidence because he in all of his immaculate cleaning and wiping down his surfaces forgets to that he had touched that bar yeah so they get a single fingerprint Ooh. on june 12 1993 ireland calls the kensington police claiming that he had killed four men and that they had to stop him from killing again i mean i guess that's their job but uh yeah <laughs> i don't know it's like why haven't you stopped me don't you care <laughs> i was like you could also work on yourself buddy yeah But he says to the Battersea police, too, he calls them, too, and asks them if they were interested in the murder of Peter Walker and why they'd stopped the investigation on him. And he told them that he would kill again, as he'd always dreamed of committing the perfect murder. Well, you're already not doing it right. Yeah. So that night, he goes back to the Colhern and he meets his fifth and final victim, 41-year-old Maltese chef named Emmanuel Spiteri, who had enjoyed dressing in leather. So he's one of these, is that a leather daddy? I don't know. Seems right. Yeah. I was just reading about this guy, too, while you're talking. He has ticked at least two of the points of the McDonald triad based on the last case. And that's all I'll say about it. I don't want to talk yeah, about that one. No. I excluded that purposefully because oh. it's... Yeah, there is cruelty to animals there. Okay. I think just the acknowledgement of some cruelty to animals in this mm-hmm. case. But yeah, that's fucking terrible. Yeah. It's good that it's mentioned so you can get like some more of his fucking mentalness but i couldn't do the curtain story because of that and like Mm -hmm. i couldn't do the curtain story without including some of it yeah but you were so pretty i left some shit out you guys oh yeah you were a minimalist in that particular case because there was a lot more stuff that went on oh yeah and the human cases too i was not going to go into all the details Mm mm-hmm 
Sorry, I just, I was... No, thank you. You're totally right. I could have at least mentioned the cruelty to animals part because that does check off another box on mm-hmm. the, the triad. Now I need to wash out my eyes with bleach. Sorry. Yeah. He <sighs> meets this Maltese chef, um, Emmanuel Spiteri, who enjoys dressing in leather. More of the normal clientele again at the Colhern. The men go to Spiteri's flat in Catford, and immediately upon arrival, Ireland bounds Spiteri to his bed, handcuffs him, and then puts a noose around his neck and demands his cash card and pin. So, like, this is a normal thing. He's like, money first. Come on. <laughs> I want my double whammy here. Money and murder. Yeah. Bye, Wobbles. Ireland then strangled Spiteri with the noose, and then he cleaned up and watched TV until he felt that it was safe to leave in the morning, as usual. But before leaving, he attempted to set fire to the flat. Oh, Jesus. So he had hoped that this fire would cause the entire apartment building to go up in flames, (laughs) and then he could, you know, really watch for it and then call back and say, hey, there's a body in that fire, too, that you might want to look into, sort of thing. But unfortunately for him... Fortunately for everybody else, the fire actually went out much sooner than that and actually just fizzled out itself still in Spiteri's bedroom. So it never even left that room where he started it. Bad at setting fires (laughs) to the benefit of everybody. Thank God. On the 13th of June, 1993, Ireland again rang the police, telling them to look for a body at the scene of the fire in South London. He told them that he had read many books on serial killers and that to reach a serial classification by the FBI, they had to have five victims. And he said, so I can stop now. As he had killed five times. You're like, no, dude, it was three. You could have stopped two fucking victims ago, you fucking douchebag. He added that he just wanted to see if it could be done and that he probably wouldn't do it again. Oh, fuck. That's reassuring. Now that he's reached his five. On the 15th of June in 1993, Spiteri's landlady called the police to report that her tenant was dead. So Spiteri's murder prompted Scotland Yard to launch a mass publicity campaign, including some televised pleas from the police to be able to reach the killer and tell him to give himself up. And detectives learned that Spiteri had traveled by train with another man to Catford on the night he was killed. So like at least someone came forward and was like, oh, he only goes by train because it's further away than everyone else was. And so this British rail security camera has this kind of really blurry footage, but the photos of the victim with this unidentified bulky man. And the photos were then published and several London men reported recollections of meeting a man matching this suspect's description at the Colhern. Do they not actually have the fingerprint yet? They do, but they don't have, like, a fingerprint's only good with a match a to comparison, it, right? Yeah. Well, I thought he would be in the system with all the time he was in prison, but... I don't know that, like, it was... It that's not searchable been, at this yeah, time. Yeah, you're right. It's the 90s. Right, they don't have like this, the nice fancy CSI computer yeah. software to immediately be like, oh, it's so-and-so. That guy's been a trouble since day one. Even in the 90s, though, like certain jurisdictions would have, they may have had their own fingerprints digitized, but they were not necessarily in alignment with other agencies or other jurisdictions. Yeah. It wasn't, I think, until a little bit later that they started to do, like, that uniform database. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we're still a few years off from more intellectual searches for this type of information. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair. But yes, the fingerprints. (laughs) Okay, so men are now coming forward and saying, I kind of think I know this guy. Here's where I met him, sort of dealio. Then on July 19th, Ireland approached police on his own. After seeing the pictures. Fuck, dude. And he says, yeah, it was the man in the photo. And I went with Spiteri to his apartment. But there was another guy there with us. And when I left, they were both still alive. Oh. Oh, sure. 
This is a, you're being very helpful, my dear. Yeah. And what color was his handkerchief in his pocket? <laughs> but the police then, because they have him in custody, are able to match his fingerprint to the one at the other crime scene. Okay. So December 20th, 1993, after pleading guilty on all counts, he was sentenced to five consecutive terms of life imprisonment. Good. Good. Yep. Consecutive, not concurrent. Not like that. Oh, you know, yeah. Life imprisonment isn't going to... But he doesn't get any opportunity for, for parole, parole which is good. Because, yeah, yeah, he doesn't deserve it. No, he does yes. not. Yeah, absolutely. Even not. though he thinks he's done, but the judge who sentenced him declared to take one human life is an outrage. To take five is carnage. Yeah. In my view, it is absolutely clear you should never be released. Yes. So yes. you are correct. Good judge. Good judging. And then I also have this other little tidbit. Ireland apparently wasn't finished at five. And there's some rumors emanating from Wakefield Prison in Yorkshire that during his time there, he strangled his cellmate who was a convicted child killer, but no charges were filed against him since he was already filing, like, or serving for life Mm -hmm. imprisonment. Yeah. Two weeks after this reported killing, Ireland was transferred to a maximum security lodging in Whitmore Prison in Cambridgeshire. Recently, the like the latest update was that he died painfully due to complications following pulmonary fibrosis and an inflamed fractured hip. Hmm. Fine. So, yeah. Okay. Quite happy. He's he's gone. Sounds good to me. Bye. So the controversy of this was like that it took the police so long because they were inadequate, inept, whatever the word is, phobic um, at their jobs, homophobic, absolutely, like didn't know how to communicate or warn the community or anything. They just didn't even really, from what I can find, they didn't try to warn the community at all that this was happening. Mm -mm. And didn't, like, sure, they did their due diligence, they found the fingerprint, but there's just a lot more that it felt like they could have done. Oh, yeah. It was really frustrating for me to read about, but... There's a, a level of complacency in their investigation and their outreach to the public in this because there's multiple murders in this case. All stemming from the Absolutely. same nightclub. They did not get that information until the after it, the spree was over. Yeah. The Colhern has since been converted into a gastropub, I believe, but it still oh, hosts sounds- gay clientele. So that's kind of cool. But mm-hmm. now they serve food too. <laughs> I was like, sounds delicious. Yeah. It does. But yeah, I, I wanted to again highlight the names. So Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn. Was it Bradley Perry or Perry Bradley? Perry Bradley. Perry Bradley. Yep. Andrew Collier and then Emmanuel Spiteri, the five victims of this horrible, horrible man. And then just to go over a tiny bit of astrology for him, I didn't do a whole, whole lot, but he is a Pisces, uh, unfucking fortunately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> touchy feely, man. Hey, I got Curtin and the fucking Gainesville Ripper on my same fucking birthday, okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At its darkest, Pisces energy is destructive and seriously pessimistic when they don't have a way or an outlet to be able to express themselves they turn inwards and then they start tearing apart systematically things that they disagree with in the world around them and so that's where that kind of pessimism and they're prone to despair and like development of these sorts of terrible deep set resentments and feelings towards everyone around them when that happens and he never had anyone to talk to no. About any of this, so. Ever. He was holding that in. Yeah. And then again, too, Pisces, head in the clouds, 
fantastical. They daydream and think about things and fantasize about things a lot. That could have led into to write his oh, violent yeah. fantasies and development of what his strategy was going to be. Mm-hmm. He probably thought about this a lot before he actually acted on it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, because he was 39 at the time of the crime spree. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, that's what I got. I do have a little bit more astrology for the upcoming week. Just a little bit. This episode is going to air on June 6th. And on Friday, June 10th, Mercury in Taurus is going to be trying with Pluto in Capricorn. And this is going to be a good day to advance in your career by taking (gasps) on a more authoritative decision-making role. Maybe I'll get a job. What day is this? Friday, June 10th. I think that's actually when the application for the job I actually might be qualified for is due. Okay. So this is a good day for that. For me, I say no thank you. I don't want the authority, though. I just want to 9 to 5, let me go home. Tell me what to do. I don't give a shit. I'm probably (laughs) going to call in sick. (laughs) I don't need more responsibility. I got enough. I'm good. But then on Saturday, June 11th, Venus and Taurus is going to be conjunct with Uranus and Taurus. And this is a day of surprises. If you like that kind of thing. I hate it. I do too. I fucking hate surprises. But so on this day, you may have an unexpected visitor, which at our house, that's not good. Don't fucking show up at my house unannounced. (laughs) Hannah hates that too. I, mm, no. But it's also a day where you might acquire some extra cash, like surprise cash flow. So, ooh. I'm cool with that, but please don't stop by my house unless I fucking know. Maybe the mysterious stranger will just leave an envelope of cash, like, tucked in your door. I don't like you putting stuff on my door. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. I guess I should stop sending you guys Amazon packages. Amazon gets a pass because I also Amazon myself a lot of shit, but, uh. Yeah. Where'd this trash panda puzzle come from? (laughs) This... Fucking realtor keeps leaving stuff on my door like, oh, the prices are so great to sell. And I like the personal touch. And I was like, stop talking to me. I will yeah. never use you. Yeah. You're like, you've given me an ick factor. Now go the fuck away. Never in a million years would I suggest you or use you. Stop. And also, you're looking a little desperate. Is the market that great? Right? If you have to be telling me all about it. Uh-huh. And how great you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the opportune time to use my favorite new saying, which is, we need to split up. I'm going to go left and you go fuck yourself. I'm thinking about getting a ring doorbell (laughs) with a little camera so at least I can actually see what it is. And then Teddy can watch you all the time. Uh Oh, Teddy. He could be my unofficial roommate. He could pay some fucking rent, Teddy. That'd be nice, Teddy. Jeez, Teddy. Pull your weight. I don't have a good transition for the call to action. Do your job, listeners, and contact us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's your handkerchief color oh please tell us yeah we'd love to know so right now we're sitting at an orange right yeah pretty solid i there. all three of us but let us know i don't know you get into some of the weird colors and we might have some additional questions you can come on the podcast Mm-hmm. yeah but we're on twitter at true trying on instagram at true crime trying on Facebook at TCT Podcast. You can email us directly at truecrimetrying at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And then check out our website, www.truecrimetrying.com. By the time this airs or the next one, I will have caught up on the website. 
you can add the ejaculatory definitely testosterone link that I'm going to send to you here soon. I'll add the handkerchief stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. I really want to know more about the handkerchiefs. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Truly. And then I do have a summer quote for you guys. Okay. Ooh. From Ralph Waldo Emerson. That guy. We're still in Gemini season as we're recording this and for a while. But Ralph Waldo, or Waldo as he preferred, Waldo, was actually born on May 25th of 1908. So he is a Gemini. But this is a summer quote. Live in the sunshine. Swim in the sea. Drink the wild air. As we embark on summer and all the wonderful things summer has to offer besides humiditities. Humiditities. Those humiditities, they do get sweaty in the summer. They do. (laughs) Get some vitamin D. Vitamin D. (laughs) Also found a handkerchief quote. Oh, jeez. I actually found two. So the first one's from Reinhold Messner, who apparently was an Italian mountaineer. And he said... I am my own home and my handkerchief is my flag. Yep. I was like, that fits pretty well. And the other one, I don't know who Anne Widcombe is. She's a British politician. She said, always carry a handkerchief, especially in television studios. Sure. But what color, Anne? (laughs) Oh my God, Jude Law. Hold on a second. Jude Law said, I sometimes shy away because I don't want to be too showy-offy. But the older I get, I think, you have a handkerchief. Put it in your pocket. Jude Law, do what you want to do. (laughs) anyway fantastic that's that Bye. bye bye music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of mike warren and pete ortega our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.